is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from business to history, and everything in between. And, of course, we're always looking for your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And this next story, well, I heard it quite a long time ago. And it's Randall Wallace at the 59th National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, in Washington, D.C. And you're thinking, Randall Wallace, never heard of him. Well, he won Best Picture for a screenplay he wrote in 1995, and that screenplay was Braveheart. He was a co-writer on Secretariat and We Were Soldiers. And you're thinking, Randall Wallace, never heard of him. Well, he won Best Picture for a screenplay, so directed those two movies, and they're gems. Really, really beautiful films. A family can watch them. You can watch them again and again and again. They're not simple, but they're filled with grace. And Randall delivered this keynote address. And here is how he started things. Movies are arguably America's most influential export. But guys like me aren't the natural choice to speak at a prayer breakfast. When I was directing We Were Soldiers down at Fort Benning, Georgia... I found time one morning to drive over to visit former President Carter's Sunday school class at his home church in Plains. I asked a friend who knew the Carters to save me a seat. And when I arrived, I found the seat was right next to Rosalind Carter. Apparently, Mrs. Carter, the gracious Southern lady that she is, wanted to be sure I felt at home. So I sat down next to Mrs. Carter and Mr. Carter from the pulpit asked the congregation to open their pew Bibles to the passage that would be his subject for the day. Now, I grew up in Baptist churches. I was really familiar with that passage. So I decided to take advantage of that time to look at the hymn book for the words of a hymn I was thinking of using in the movie that I was directing. So as I was thumbing through the hymn book, and everyone else was looking for the passage. Someone touched my arm, and it was Mrs. Carter, and she handed me her Bible open to the proper passage. (laughs) And I, I realized in that moment that Mrs. Carter had decided that since I was a Hollywood filmmaker, I didn't know the difference between a prayer book and a Bible. It also occurred to me that I had the perfect chance. I'd say, she gave it to me, and she'd have to say, well, I guess I did. And, and it was a beautiful Bible, too. It was, it was worn with her own hands. It was, it was marked with the joy and the tears of the First Lady. Imagine what it would bring on eBay. <laughs> To prepare myself for this morning, I've studied the, the speeches of those who've gone before me at this podium. They've advocated causes that are vital, and I can't compete with their accomplishments or their eloquence. So this morning, I thought we'd do something that, as nearly as I can tell, is unprecedented for a keynote address at the National Prayer Breakfast. I thought we'd talk about prayer. Now, I'm no philosopher, I'm not a preacher. 
I'm a storyteller, like Jesus. As nearly as I can tell, that's my only similarity to him. <laughs> Except for one other thing. I, too, have cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I've lived a life of tremendous privilege. I, was, I grew up right down the road from here in Lynchburg, Virginia. Now, Virginians are righteous and sober people, too proud to tell a lie. But I was born in Tennessee. <laughs> My father was born in Lizard Lick, Tennessee. The men in my father's family are Alton, Elton, Dalton, Lyman, Gleeman, Herman, Thurman, and Clyde. They, they called Clyde Pete and nobody knew why. When I was a child, I suffered from asthma. I had attacks so severe I couldn't breathe at all. And I felt that if I panicked, I would die. And my grandmother would hold me upright in her arms all night long, and she would sing to me. And she would she'd tell me stories from the Bible or from her childhood. And to me, they seemed one and the same. And she'd look into my eyes, and she would smile. And, and I don't see blue eyes to this day without seeing hers. As I grew older, I found her looking at me in a different way. And uh, I said, Grandmother, why are you looking at me like that? And she said, well, you remind me of Ruth. Ruth was her husband, my grandfather. Uh, he died before I was born. So I really wanted to know about him, and I asked my father to tell me what he was like. And my father told me this story. And when we come back, we're going to hear this story and more. And again, we're listening to Randall Wallace. And my goodness, he's written some gems, some classics, American classics. And this is Randy Wallace actually telling one of the finest stories he's ever told about his own life, about his own faith walk, and about prayer. So when we return, a writer's story, here on Our American Story. return to Our American Stories and to Randall Wallace telling his family story about faith and prayer at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. some years ago. And when we left off, Randall's father was about to tell him the story 
of his grandfather, who had died before Randall was born. During the Great Depression, my grandfather, who was a farmer, decided to build a country store to help feed his family. And there was no money and there was no wood, no wood to be had anywhere, but he found the wreck of a riverboat on the Tennessee River. And he salvaged that wood and he used that wood to build his store. But then he needed stock to sell in the store. And the one place in town that paid cash for labor was the plant where they froze huge blocks of ice. And men with tongs would grab these blocks of ice and sling them up onto wagons so that they could sell them to the farmers whose homes had no electricity. My grandfather was the only white man that took that job. All the rest were what they then called colored men. So his first day on the job, the supervisor, who was also white, came up to my grandfather and he said, now listen, I just want you to know that you and I are the only white men here. All the rest are colored men. So I cuss at him. If I forget myself and I call you an SOB, don't pay me no mind. I don't mean nothing by it. It's just the way I am. And my grandfather, who is 6'3 and weighed 245 pounds, looked at this man and said, I understand completely. And I just want you to know that if you forget yourself and you call me an SOB and I hit you in the face with a claw hammer, don't pay me no mind. I don't mean nothing by it. It's just the way I am. And in that one story, I understood everything about who my grandfather was and who I wanted to be. And I understood the power of a story. And my mother and father worked hard so that my sister and I could go to college. It was something my parents had never had a chance to do. It was impossible for them after World War II. My father was a salesman who loved his customers. And he won promotion after promotion until one day the company he had worked for for 20 years, a family-owned business, was sold to a group of investors who knew nothing about the business. But they believed the way to increase profits was to fire all the old guys and hire younger ones who were cheaper. And my father was one of the old ones. He was 38 years old. Now, I always believed that my father had lived his life wanting to please the father he had never had. His father had died before he was born. The grandfather he had told me about was my mother's father, not his. He had never been fired from anything. He was the best and the bravest man I ever knew. And he came apart. While he was in the hospital, my sister and I were farmed out to relatives. At one point, we lived in a house that had no indoor plumbing. When I told my father about that, he said, well, rich people have a canopy over their beds. I guess we've got a can of pee under ours. <laughs> And that's when I knew my daddy would be all right. 
last sale he made for the company that fired him was for $90,000. That was in 1961. The first sale he made when he came out of the hospital was for 90 cents. He worked 100 hours a week. He clawed his way back to tremendous success. God bless America. God bless my daddy. He told me I could go to college anywhere I wanted, and I chose the most expensive place possible. And he was so proud. But when I graduated, I didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to tell the kind of story that would let a young man know who his ancestors were and who he might be. The kind of story that would keep a child alive through a lonely night. My first job was in Nashville, working at a theme park, managing a show that featured live animals who played musical instruments. <laughs> I'm not making this up. I had a piano playing pig <laughs> named Pigarachi. I had a drum-playing duck named Bert Backquack. You can imagine how proud my parents were. But I kept writing. I moved to Los Angeles. I found an opportunity in television. I married, had two beautiful sons. I had purpose in my life, and I worked the way I'd seen my father work, with pride and with passion. I won a multi-year contract for employment. We bought an old house and remodeled it to be the family home. I was promoted to producer, and except for an occasional mishap with my tie, life was sweet. And then the Writers Guild went out on strike, and that caused the thriving company that I was working for to void my contract. And the strike went on forever. And when it was over, I had no savings and no job, and nobody would return my phone calls. I'm sure that's never happened where you've worked. And one day, I mean, I kept trying. I was always good at trying. But I was sitting at my desk, and I was staring at nothing, and I had a knot in my stomach, and I looked down at my hands, and they were trembling, and I realized I was breaking down the way my father had. And I was afraid that I was betraying my father, and my mother, and my grandmother, and my grandfather. And my greatest fear of all was that I was going to let down my sons. So I got down on my knees. I had nowhere else to go. And I prayed a simple prayer. I said, Lord, 
What I really care about right now, what really matters to me, are those boys. And maybe they don't need to grow up in a great big house with a swimming pool and a lot of bathrooms. Maybe they need to grow up in a little house with one bathroom or no bathrooms at all. Maybe they need to see what a man does when he gets knocked down, the way my father showed me. And if that's what's best for them, then I pray you let me take it. But I pray if I go down in this fight, then I not do it on my knees to someone else. But standing up with my flag flying. I got up. And I wrote the words that led to Braveheart. And what a heck of a story, folks. And what things were covered here. What he learned about his grandfather. You know, that one line back. Don't pay me no mind. I don't mean nothing by it. It's just the way I am. That grandfather saying that back to that guy who said, I'm going to call you an SOB. And his grandfather saying, you call me an SOB, I'm going to punch you in the face. All due respect. And he'd never met his grandfather, but that one story, it told the whole story of the man, his character, his nature. And by the way, that boy wanted to be like that man. And this is the power of stories. It's why we tell them here on this show. It's the imitative power of stories and heroes. It's the most important thing in life. And when we come back... We can hear the rest of this remarkable speech. And it's Randall Wallace's real-life story, raw, uncensored, and beautifully put together and crafted. I'm sure he spent as much time writing this as almost anything he'd ever written. National Prayer Breakfast, Randall Wallace, the rest of the story here on Our American Stories. been listening to Hollywood screenwriter and director Randall Wallace deliver the keynote speech from the 2011 National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. And what a speech this is. And I had just recalled it recently, and that's the great thing about this show. Who cares if it happened yesterday or the day before? Randall had thus far shared with us his life story from his family sacrificing everything to put him through the best schools, landing a dream job in Hollywood only to lose everything. And in his deepest, darkest moments, he finds the inspiration from the Lord to write Braveheart. Here's the rest of the story. Great writers like uh, Robert Frost and Jane Austen have said that an ending that does not surprise the writer won't surprise the reader when I wrote about William Wallace standing on the battlefield ready to die for what he believed I felt it and when I came to the end I wept now was that moment of prayer 
the single pivotal moment in the entire arc of my life? Of course not. My professor and mentor in college, the great Thomas Langford of Duke University, once told our class, there's no great decision in our lives that stands alone. The trajectory of every other decision we've ever made points our way to the future. Our lives are unfolding stories. They are moving pictures. If we took a freeze frame of Golgotha on the day that Jesus was crucified and asked someone unfamiliar with the story to guess who was the victor in that scene, they'd be unlikely to say the one hanging on the cross in the middle. It was from that cross that Jesus cried, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that cry does not amaze me. What does amaze me is that while one of the thieves crucified next to Jesus mocked him, the other acknowledged the justice of his punishment and asked Jesus for help. And in the agonies of the crucifixion, Jesus was able to say, today you'll be with me in paradise. It seems to me that Jesus' response to that thief was not just the answer to that thief's prayer at the moment. It was the answer to every prayer that thief never prayed. If God is God at all, God hears our prayers whether we pray them or not. So why pray at all? Well, for me, it's not because God needs to know my prayers. It's because I do. Prayer sifts our souls like sand. Take any moment in life. Take this one. Here in a room resonant with power. Did we come this morning because we want to feel closer to that power? Do we go before God because what we want to do is use the power, the ultimate power we imagine that God has? Or do we get down on our knees to acknowledge the truth of our weakness, to rise again in the strength of that truth? Jesus said the truth will make us free. He also said the truth is God is love. And it is the prayer that comes from love. That's the prayer that goes to God. My father once told me a story of a man who was drowning in the ocean. He cried out, oh God, if you save me, I'll spend the rest of my life in your service. And a moment later, a boat came out of the fog and dragged him from the waves. And on the way back to the shore, the man lifted his eyes to heaven and said, of course, you understand I mean in an advisory capacity. <laughs> Life does not give us the option of advisory capacity. Tolstoy wrote in War and Peace that in a battle, one man throwing down his weapon and running away can panic the whole army. And in a panic, one man snatching up the battle flag and running back toward the enemy can rally a whole army, and no one but God knows what will happen and when. 
What if prayer is a way to glimpse God's true intentions, the divine purpose for each of us? I'm not a theologian. I'm not looking for logic. I'm only trying to understand my experience that prayer matters. Does it change the mind of God? I don't know. All I can tell you is that it changes me. When I was a boy, we sang a hymn, Footsteps of Jesus. Not everyone grew up singing that hymn. I'm sometimes thought of as a rarity in Hollywood, a filmmaker who would speak freely about faith, about prayer. But in reality, I'm not so rare. All of my fellow dreamers know too well the fleeting nature of beauty, the falseness of fame, the pettiness of power. And when I pray with or for my friends, my first concern isn't whether they are the followers of the footsteps of Jesus, but whether I am. And if I've led you to believe that I'm any example of righteousness, then maybe you're just not familiar with our Tennessee talent for stretching the truth. Because <laughs> even if I could have stolen Mrs. Carter's Bible, I couldn't have kept it. You can own the pages, but you don't own the Bible till you've lived it. Some of you here lead nations. Some of you here lead the world. All of us here have one heart inside us. And it's within that one heart where the whole battle is fought. There's many ways to deal with the ultimate questions of God as there are people on the planet Earth. But every one of us must stand alone before all that made us and all that we have been and all that we might be. And dying in your bed many years from now, would you not trade all the days from that day to this for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and open your heart before God Almighty and say, I will lose my life and I will win it in loving in all the ways you lead my heart to love. You have a prayer. Pray it. Amen. And you've been listening to Randall Wallace. And again, that's the National Prayer Breakfast. And you can just Google that. National Prayer Breakfast and Randall Wallace. And watch it. Send the link to friends. Send this link to friends. Randall Wallace's National Prayer Breakfast. We'd love to hear your favorite prayer, a prayer that changed your life, prayer in your life, and how it's helped you, healed you. Send them to Our American Stories, and you can do that by going to ouramericannetwork.org. And if you have a favorite prayer, send it to us. It's such a fundamental part of our lives. No one talks about it, and we should. And so many of us, it's that moment alone where no one else, no one else is editing, no one else is listening, and we just open ourselves up to a higher power and speak 
Well, we just about have to speak what we really feel. Randall Wallace's story, his father's story, his grandfather's story, a story of prayer and faith in action. This is Our American Story. We continue here with our American stories, and we tell stories of every kind here on the show, and sometimes every once in a while, some some tough ones. And this one is homelessness, and it's something that, well, it's affecting many people in this country and many families. And we've all seen it on the street, folks, someone with a sign, someone asking us for a few bucks, and we've always had to wonder, is that money going to a drug habit? Is that really going to help that person? And we feel just horrible because that a person could be in that place. Well, there before the grace of God go I, is what we think. And then we move on. Well, one person decided not to move on and to find out the real wide range of homelessness because it's more than that person on the street. And his name is Mark Horvath. And he's experienced the highs and lows of the American dream from a successful career in TV to barely surviving homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard. But he found his voice again when he founded the Invisible People Project and hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their lives. Today, he's the online voice of the homeless, and he's bringing their stories to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark's hearing from Josiah and his wife, Trisha. Here's Mark. Josiah and Trisha, we're here in Seattle at Tent City 3. Tell me about it. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, well, we came here from Alaska and we had originally thought that we were going to stay in a hotel for about like a week. And, um, sorry, we're checking on a two year old. Uh, anyway, so we thought we were going to stay in a hotel for about a week. That'd be easy to get an apartment. It did not work out that way at all. And so I previously had come down a few months before that because I had a, a drug addiction. I came down here to get some treatment and, uh, I remember hearing that they had these great family shelters that's super easy to get into. We'd have no problem with that. So that was my theory I went on. And it was not like that at all. We came down here. We had our two-year-old. Um, we called a couple of the shelters. They called us to go down to one of the family shelters. And when we got there at like 8 o'clock at night, they said it was the wrong family. <laughs> so we couldn't stay. Um, we were told that if we separated, that we could easily be sheltered. So we would have to split up so one of us could take our child and that the other person could get sheltered somewhere else. That didn't work for us either since we're married and we have a happy marriage. We didn't want to split up. Um, we finally got to Tent City because they took us and they took they took children. Although when we got here, he was the only child. Um, we went from one child to about, I think, 10 kids at one point. Something like that, yeah. We had like 10 kids here. So he was super happy playing with all the kids. Um, we've been here a little over a year. Maybe, maybe a year and... 14 months, something like that. 14 months, something like that. Um, since we've been in Tent City, my husband got a job. He has a full-time job. We've been saving money to get an apartment. Uh, housing absolutely is horrible trying for us trying to get. 
um, we've called several different agencies. Either they won't take us because we're not currently in an addiction or we are not disabled enough to qualify for their benefits. Um, my husband had a traumatic brain injury and when we called one of the agencies and they are asking us all these questions about, you know, do you have an addiction? Are you in recovery? Do you, anyone have a disability? And we're going over all of this and she said that we didn't score high enough right. <laughs> to get any kind of attention, but we could hang up and try and call again and start all over again. And she told us to lie. And I was like, you want us to lie about this? Like I felt really uncomfortable about that. If you lie and then you get all these benefits, what happens when the lie is found out? You know, like that just really sat really ill with me. Or when they said that if we were still currently in our addiction that we could easily get housing because we have a child. It makes no sense that you have two people that have been clean Right, you're two years clean now. Yes, well, like a year and a half. Well, a year and a half. A year and a half. Year and a half. <laughs> but still, like a year and a half clean, and we don't qualify for housing. But somebody who is shooting up on the side of the road, they get housing, and they don't have any kids. But then they lose their housing in a few months. Right. It's infuriating, actually. Right. But. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Homeless services makes it so hard for people to get help. It does. It's, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So we're in a tent city. Mm -hmm. You guys are looking over because your kid's over there. Yeah. And I love tent cities because I'm an old hippie. Mm -hmm. And this is a self-governed mm -hmm. place where it's community. So your kid's safe. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But there's homeless people here. My goodness, how could you let your kid run around homeless people? I know. Maybe it's because we're homeless ourselves. I don't know. No. <laughs> well, we know these homeless people. Yes. Right. I mean, and that's that's the biggest part about uh, the public's uh, thought of what a homeless person is. They go downtown and they look at the people shooting up on the side of the road and that's what they that's what they're thinking, oh, all homeless people are like this. Right. It's not the truth. I have met numerous amounts of homeless people who are super nice, who are super respectful. All they're trying to do is get out of the rut and it's just harder than anyone can imagine sometimes. Right. You know, I think people always think that when they see someone on the street and they have a sign that says they're hungry and they're homeless and they're dirty. I get infuriated when I see people with their signs on the street. There are too many people that will give you a shower, that will give you food. What you're asking, when people are like that, they're probably either drunk or high and they can't get into a shelter. Most of the programs, they're trying to survive. Yeah, they're trying to survive. But they they think that all homeless people are like that, right? And they're and not. It's a small percentage. It is a very small percentage of the people that are like that. The most homeless people you no, don't even no. know they're homeless. No. And that's what's so amazing about Ten City Three and the other Ten City sanctioned Ten Cities here is, I mean, it's as clean as it can be. Mm -hmm. It's amazing that it's in a church parking lot. Thank God for this church that it's allowing. Oh, absolutely. I wish more churches would. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about Ten City Three since we're talking about. Let's see. It's we have to be. You have to be sober to be here. Sobriety is required. We have a code of conduct. It's a strict code of conduct. There's no drinking. There's no drugs. There's no violence. Um, you can't have any weapons in here. You can't have a knife that's bigger than three and a half inches. Um, if somebody wants to come in here to stay here, that's that's great, that's awesome. You have to have a valid driver's license or an ID card or a passport. It's just gotta be a government issued ID. And then they run a background check for sex offenders, not just in the city, but for nationally as well. And we do that to protect ourselves as well as the kids. 
you know, with, that just makes everybody safer. There's some shelters that don't check for that. There's a lot of shelters that just let you in without an ID or any kind of a background check because everybody needs shelter. But just here, this one, we raise the bar a little bit. You, you have to work to be here. Um, you don't have to pay to live here, but participation is required. We have someone who runs the desk. You have an executive committee that's made up of five people. People are, there's 24 hour security. You have to patrol the inside of the, the tent city as well as the outside neighborhood. You so, guys patrol the outside neighborhood too? We do. Within a block radius of the camp, yeah. Yep. We pick up. That is awesome. Yep. No, but we stop. We pick up trash. We pick up whatever's left behind. We make sure that we take care of the bus stops that we use. Um, we just keep an eye out for our neighbors. Like Actually, people always freak out if they have a tent city that comes in their neighborhood. But statistic-wise, we make their crime go down because we keep an eye out for people right. trying to break in someone's car, break into someone's house. You know, we ask questions when we see weirdness. You know, people think that we're the weird. We're not the weird. We keep the weird out. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, what would you want people to know about homelessness that they probably don't know? A lot of people have a misunderstanding that if you're homeless and you have a family, that CPS needs to get involved and they need to take your kids. There is no reason that you can be homeless living in a shelter or in a tent city and you cannot be a great parent. Or it doesn't mean that your family has to get taken away from you. I am so glad you brought this up because you are spot on and CPS, Child Protective Services, mm -hmm. should only be called if there's abuse and the Absolutely. child is in danger. Absolutely. Homelessness is not necessarily danger. It's not. Families should be kept together. Absolutely. You know, it's more beneficial for the family to be kept together, Absolutely. even if they're living in a tent, than Absolutely. separating the kids. Absolutely. My child's got a family of 70 people here. Right. Any one of these other 70 homeless people would take a bullet for my child in a heartbeat. I had, a, I had an accident recently and I had to go to the hospital. I broke my foot and I had to leave my son here with someone in our camp while he could come home from work. So there was a couple of hours where he was by himself. Never once did I even worry. Not once did not 10 people jump up to right. help him because they knew he knows them. Right. I have. It takes a village to raise a family and I have a village yeah. and I've got a great village. If you had three wishes, what would they be? Three wishes. A house. Nothing big. Just Nothing house. big. Just a tiny house. Yeah. Something that was ours. Or come up with better housing so that we don't have to have tent cities or that there's people on or the more streets. More affordable housing. More so affordable housing. Afford it. Affordable housing would be oh. amazing. Those would be my three wishes. I'd have affordable housing. Cool. A home for us. And a car. And you've been listening to Trisha and her husband, Josiah. And they have a two-year-old. And, well, this is the voice of the homeless. It's more than just that random person on the street, as she described, holding up a sign, dirty. And they're homeless, too, folks. They have families, those folks, too. But that's not everyone who's homeless, and we're here to bring voice to a, a group of people that well, are voiceless. And thanks to Mark Horvath for all that he's doing. And by the way, he's experienced it himself firsthand, from the highs to the lows. And by the way, we've all been at highs and low points in our lives, and but for some help perhaps have been in precarious situations ourselves. You can learn more about Mark's 501c3. It's a nonprofit, Invisible People. You can see him on YouTube. Go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv and give to this good cause. The Invisible People Project, Mark Horvath's story, and today, Josiah and Trisha's story here 
on Our American Stories. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now Alex Cortez brings us this next story. I loved my father, but we had a very conflicting relationship. Now, as I look back, mostly because of me, but I wanted to overcome my father and kind of escape his control. And making a lot of money was the path to do that. You're listening to a fascinating Texan named Jeff Sandifer. I don't think I had, uh, while I loved the oil business and the people and got to love it more as I was in it, my goal was freedom and money meant freedom to me. You know, th- then I had the great fortune at age 28 or 29 to have far more money than I would ever need. So I way surpassed anything I would thought I would do. And, and you know, money matters. My old professor at Harvard, Howard Stevenson, used to say, it's better to be rich than be poor. Let's be very clear about that. But anyone who has lots of extra money knows that people way overestimate its effectiveness. I mean, there's, you, you can't really buy happiness. You can't buy a great family. And so, you know, really being rich is more about spending less than you make, not how much you make. And the reason is, if you spend less than you make, your time belongs to you. And so to me, it's more about freedom. But I had the great fortune at a very early age to kind of let that go. And then the only thing I've done is I, I just don't spend a lot of money. And now I'm a hoarder, so that's not a good thing. It's not good to be a hoarder or a spender to excess, but I'm a hoarder. Um, I love security. And so part of that is spending a lot less than I make. And you know, then you have the problem of what to do with the excess, which is a, um, a whole other issue that some of your other people you interview can comment on better than I could. Frank Hanna being key on the list, What Your Money Means, his book is a terrific read on how to think about what to do with excess money of any magnitude. I mean, even thousands of dollars. Bob Witt was the dean at the University of Texas Business School, and he's a terrific guy. And if you look at Bob, he looked kind of like an accountant, but he was a wily, smart, smart man, you know, inside a bureaucracy. So Bob approached me and said, look, I heard you were interested in teaching. Would you come teach a course at the University of Texas? And I said, sure. And so I spent, you know, a hundred hours or more working on this course, bringing together everything I had learned from my best professors at Harvard and got ready to teach. I was going to teach in September, started calling Bob Witt. He wouldn't return my phone calls. Well, to me, you return people's phone calls. So, and he'd asked me to teach. And I had a handshake deal. We had a deal I was going to start on a date certain. And it wasn't just kind of, would you think about it? So I started calling him every week and then every day. 
and then about every hour, I was just intent on he was going to pick up the phone. So finally, I got fed up and I just drove to Austin and went and sat in his office because I was going to get an answer of when am I going to start teaching. And Bob, who became a dear friend and has for years now been president of the University of Alabama and probably one of the great college presidents in America. But Bob comes in and sheepishly says, the faculty won't let you teach. I said, the faculty, you're the CEO of this place. And he shook his head and laughed. He goes, you have no idea how little power a dean has, which I would later find out was true. So I started raising all sorts of cane and calling members of the Board of Regents. And I finally ended up in the office of the then president of the university, Bill Cunningham. And he said, I don't care. I don't want to ever hear your name again. I don't care if you teach astrology. We're not going to let you teach graduate school because you don't have a PhD, but you can teach an undergraduate course. But you teach whatever you want. And I mean, he, he, didn't, he didn't say you can teach astronomy. He said astrology. He goes, we don't care. Just don't ever come in my office again. So I'm kind of sheepishly decide I'm going to go teach this one class and then I'll be done. It'll be undergrads and I don't really even know how to do that. I show up the first day and my class is filled with graduate students. And I'm so confused and I find out later that this young student, Dave Baldwin, had wanted to take the course. So he went down and found the woman who controlled, in this day and time in the university, there was a um, centralized computing system. So it was like the Wizard of Oz and she was underground and she controlled the whole school from this kind of one console. They went and took her cookies and cakes and bribed her. Well, I mean, they didn't bribe her because she was happy to do it, but they basically, you know, kind of smused her. And she changed the course number on my course to make it a graduate course only. And David went out and filled the course with the graduate students. So my first year of teaching, and teaching people that were my age, 28, 29 years old at the time, I win Graduate Teacher of the Year. Well, the school has no choice but then to promote me at the graduate school. So if David doesn't go to that effort and change that course number, I'm not teaching for 30 years. So, so what happens is my courses at the start was probably as uh, students would tell you, I spent 80% of my time on your course and 20% of my time on the other four courses. So this is a really, really hard course and I graded on a forced curve. So only, I can't remember if it's 10% or 15% of the students would make an A. A lot of students would make a B and then some would make a C. So I graded much harder. It was much harder to get in. The workload was probably five or six X. And now what that does though, is that it attracts all the very best students to your class. And so over time, I kept attracting the best students and even had an impact at the University of Texas of attracting better students to the whole MBA school. 48% of the students were coming for the entrepreneurship program. Well, that was run by a bunch of people working part-time. Our group, as we grew, won the Teacher of the Year Award 11 out of 11 times. Seven of us teaching part-time. We're teaching 25% of all the elective hours at a school with 1,000 students. Now, to put that in perspective, seven people part-time, 25% of the elective hours there were 141 faculty members. So the question began to arise, what is everybody else doing? If I could teach this entire school with 17 people, if I do the math, if I had 17 full-time people, what in the world are the other 124 people doing? And that's what got us in trouble. Should never have asked that question. No, you should never have asked that question, Jeff. And we're listening to Jeff Sandifer's Higher Education Story, here on Our American Stories. And boy, I'd love to have taken that class. Just listening to him, I know that it wouldn't have been a normal 
normal higher ed class as someone who went to a, a great American law school, the University of Virginia School of Law. I learned so little and what I did learn from with the real life practitioners, not the theoreticians, guys and gals who actually tried cases or were actual real life lawyers. When we come back, more of Jeff Sandifer's story here on Our American Stories. Turn to Our American Stories and Jeff Sanifer's story of teaching at the University of Texas's B School and starting the number one entrepreneurship program in the country there. And that, of course, well, that turned into a problem. If we're going to ask the students to live by a forced curve, then we're going to have to live by one. And so we were very explicit in our promises to them. We had a signed contract of what we would deliver and what was expected of them. And you know, we graded on this four curve, but we agreed among our group internally that we were gonna live and die by the student ratings. And that the lowest rated teacher, if we weren't all above at a very high level, would step aside every year. And really that started with Bob Witt. I went to see Bob and I said, Bob, I've got this teacher rating, but I don't know what it means. Can I see everybody else's ratings? And Bob and his kind of, uh, Bob was always very understated, said, well, the legislature has passed a law that we must collect the teacher ratings, but they haven't passed a law that we have to publish them. And I said, so you collect all these and no one sees them. And he goes, that's right. And I said, well, look, I, it can't cost much. I'll get an, a, you know, an assistant or somebody with an Excel spreadsheet and we'll just publish them. And he said, well, the faculty wouldn't like that. They'd rather no one sees those ratings. And I said, oh, okay, I guess I'm out of luck. And then Bob said, well, there is this thing called the Freedom of Information Act. And were you to file a request for the information and publish it, there really wouldn't be anything I could do about it. But don't tell anybody I told you that. The reason all those, you can now see teacher rankings around the country, I think in many ways started with Bob Witt and that conversation because it became then much more common for the teacher ratings to be published. But, but I, I say there's a tribute to Bob because he wanted to do the right thing, but the deans have no power. They're elected by the faculty. So there's Bob's very smart way of giving me a hint of the way I could have more transparency in education. But of course that enrages the faculty who aren't good teachers and don't care about teaching. And again, I want to be really careful. There were tenure and tenure track and full-time professors who were fabulous teachers and they loved us and we loved them. If you were a politician teacher, who basically sat on committees and did research nobody read, and that's unfortunately who ran the school, you hated our guts. We didn't even know that, right? We're in a little office downtown. We didn't know we were disliked so much. We should have realized that. We didn't go do all the political work. We were too busy to kind of make ourselves liked. Uh, we would occasionally give a grant to give somebody a computer so we could get a better classroom. I mean, there's the system of dishonesty inside higher education. This latest scandal about admissions and parent, 
That is the tip of the iceberg of the corruption in higher education. It is the most corrupt, it's more corrupt than the Soviet Union, and it starts at, you know, people trading money to get things that they want inside the school, like, a, you know, a better office or a better computer. And so we did have to play that game some because we couldn't find a classroom to teach in. But other, other than that, we didn't really engage with the political faculty. You can look at all the higher ed financial statements you want, they don't mean anything. So if you're an accountant or you've done accounting and you think of a line item, you have to call something, some, you, you know, a chair is a chair, I bought a chair. So you can't understand how many chairs you bought unless you actually categorize the thing you bought as a chair. If I start calling something administrative cost for the Alex Fellowship, well, that could be kind of anything, right? I mean, what does that mean? And so inside higher ed, because there's really never been any accountability in the budgeting, the charts of accounts are often very fuzzy. What that does is it allows you to move money from one place to another or spend money under you. So it gives you great discretion within the university if you control a pot of money to spend it on you know, legitimate things or travel or, and so it makes you kind of head of a fiefdom not running a very transparent thing that we would do in a business where you actually want to know what you're spending on because you want to control spending. It's the opposite of that. And, and, and to be fair with, with retrospect, and I hope a tad more maturity, although that could be arguable, um, you know, I was pretty irascible and I got to be pretty vocal about the students or the customer. I, I remember walking in one day early and seeing this UT had a copy center where you get copies made, and I had forgotten. I was flying back and forth every day from Houston to teach, so I was going to a lot of effort. I couldn't get a parking place because you had to petition the president of the university for a parking place. So I parked in a paid lot three blocks away. That was fine, but I was trying to fly back and forth, and so timing was hard. So I was getting pretty fed up, and I walked in one day, and I was like, oh, I didn't get exactly the right copies. I'm going to go to the copy center. And there were three employees having coffee, sitting back. It reminded me of Russia, where I was also at the, you know, at the time. And no one would wait on me. And there was a gigantic sign that said, your problems are not our problems. And uh, there's a Kinko's there, by the way, now, and you actually get good service. But at this point, it was a university-run thing. It was like dealing with the Soviet Union. And I thought, and this is the bad part of me, I wish I was just in charge for a day to fire these people and get somebody in here who cared and take down that sign. It's absurd that we're paying money and I can't get copies made. Now again, that's an immature, selfish kind of reaction. And I was, you know, I didn't play well with others. I wasn't going to, and none of us really spent the time doing the politics to be well-liked. So we're going along at this point, it's about 2000. We're the top-ranked entrepreneurship program in the country with a top-ranked program at the University of Texas Business School. We're attracting 48% of their students and I get a phone call. And it's someone inside the university, I will never out this person, but somebody on the inside that really liked us. And the person said, they're gonna fire half of you this summer and the other half at Christmas. And for all you've done for this university, you deserve to know. I was in the meeting, it's not fair, they hate you guys, couldn't care less about the students, they want you out of here. And years later, one of my students was sitting beside the then dean who, told the same story. He was at a coffee shop sitting back to back and took notes as the dean explained to somebody how they got us and how intentional it was. Um, so when that happened, we just announced to the world they were gonna fire half of us before they announced it. 
We just said, just so, just so you know, we've been told we're all going to be fired, and we'd like to know if that's true. And we're going we're gonna to actually email all of our former students. Well, 300 students flew in, like alumni flew in. They had this mass meeting with the dean, and it was this guy named Bob May. And the students, he kept trying to explain, and, they were, and it was like a riot, and they, people were mad. We were all sitting in the back, just quietly not saying a word to the meeting that the students had basically called. And they kept saying, we want to know one thing, who's the customer, who's the customer? And we pretty much primed that. And Bob May said, um, look, I'm going to be honest with you. It's the pursuit of knowledge and the tenured faculty. You're not the customers, you're just the products. Now, that wasn't the right thing to say for, for Bob, but it was the truth. And I respect him for saying the truth. And that was when we left. So you can argue we quit or we were fired. And so it's kind of some of each. Um, we then started to feel bad because all these students had come to take our courses, but they only took them in the second year, not the first year. So we stranded a big batch of students and we said, we're gonna do one more course off campus across the street. It's gonna be 40 hours a week, so don't take it unless you're serious. It's free, but you're gonna to have to pay for the materials and if you don't finish, we're not refunding your money. And we thought 20 people will show up and we'll be done. First day, 135 people showed up, including students who'd driven from Baylor, Texas A&M and Rice and faculty that had come from those places to take the course. We had no idea that we had any kind of follow-up. And we did when the students all showed up to protest, that was stunning, because we were gonna try to you know, create some, I mean, we wanted to create a little pressure, but we, the people would actually get on planes and, would, and, and organize and fly into Austin. It was stunning to us, as was when 135 people showed up. And we really said, after that course, gee, if we've got this following we didn't know we had, um, maybe we could start our own MBA program. We've always said the first year's worthless. Why don't we just do a one-year program and do an accelerated program? Well, we were the second one-year program in the United States, but we did it out of just sheer experimentation. And so out of that, the Acton MBA was launched. What a crazy idea. If that one year out of the two required for an MBA, I know my law degree was three years, and we could have easily gotten that done in one, but boy, that would have rankled the faculty. That's a lot of jobs, and that slow run and that slow haul, while everybody else did it, that was always what we heard. Well, we did three years, you're doing them too. And by the way, the students are the customer. And the answer, the very honest answer that Jeff Sandifer got back, well, that's part of the problem. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story of entrepreneurship within the education field itself. When you talk about a field ripe for disruption, I think we all know that this country could be doing better with the perhaps trillion-plus dollars a year we spend in the area. Jeff Sandifer's story continues here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories and Jeff Sandifer's story. After his team of entrepreneur professors 
were kicked out of the University of Texas's business school for not having PhDs and being too successful, they decided to start their own MBA school called Acton, which practices what's called the case method, where students are presented with real challenges that have confronted real businesses and places them in the role of the decision maker. Let's return to Jeff. Most of the MBA schools are still caught in a 1950s, 60s paradigm. So MBA programs were designed to staff General Motors back when they started. Because the faculty disciplines are so embedded in concrete, so finance and accounting don't talk to each other, marketing doesn't talk to finance, there is no sales because sales is dirty and it's a nasty business. We're one of a few business schools that actually teaches sales. Now, why, how can you not teach sales? Well, to academics, marketing is pristine enough, sales isn't. If you've got sales in a business, you can fix everything else. If you don't have sales, you know, I mean, you, you, you have nothing to fix. I mean, so if you, if you don't have sales, that's the hardest problem. Everything else can be tweaked. And so you've got these old silos that were built and have been kind of entrenched by the academic disciplines, and they just haven't changed very much since the 50s and 60s. And they didn't talk to each other. There was no coordination. At the Acton Business School, the curriculum is centrally designed and integrated so that every case builds on the next one, even though they're different areas. And it's designed around things like recognizing opportunity, launching a business, growing a business, harvesting a business, cash and valuation, not finance or accounting. I don't care about those two things. I care about creating cash and measuring cash. Those are kind of different ways to approach measuring cash. So it's really a difference between targeting to run a real business and targeting an academic approach to learning knowledge that is peripherally tied to business. People ask, you know, the word entrepreneur gets thrown around a lot. And so when we talk to, about what our graduates at the Acton MBA are doing, we say, look, we just want you to run a business. And running a business means you stand between sales and operations and you make the difficult trade-offs because sales wants to sell any color, any item for free because they want to get their commission. Operations wants to make one item of one size and paint everything black because that's easier to make. And as the entrepreneur, you have to stand between the two of those and pick which customers you're going to serve and how you're going to serve them. And so we say, we don't care if you buy a business, if you start a business, or if you work your way to the top of a business, we're preparing you to stand between sales and operations and make those difficult trade-offs. Two-thirds to 70%, depending on the year, of our students will go off and actually run a business. Now, we don't actually recommend that because often you need to go take a stepping stone job in an industry and be in an industry for a number of years before you launch out. So we don't, we don't measure the fact they run off and start something as important. And in fact, we've got a lot of students, I mean, more than our share that have made a lot of money, $100 million or $25 million or $10 million. But we have to be really careful. That's not the point. The point is to develop principled entrepreneurs who are going to go out and protect freedom and the freedom of religion, economic freedom, and political freedom. And so that's what we measure things by, and you can't really look at that till looking back on a life. And so we're really careful, and we get criticized for not crowing more about the successes, but it's a really dangerous and slippery slope when you start doing that, you start believing that's what matters, and it's not. 
just simply not. We want our students to be successful. Our promises are that you will learn to learn, learn to make money, and learn how to live a life of meaning. And we deliver on the learn to make money, but frankly, the learn to learn is the thing people say they get the most value out of early, and then later when they come back, it's the life of meaning piece. So making money's hard, but you do the right thing, you work hard enough, you'll typically make enough money to be happy. If you're in the MBA program, you have to go sell door to door. You have to sell a children's book for $30 when you could buy it for $20 on the internet. And if you don't make your quota, you're out of the program. And you've just paid $65,000 to come. And so we'll have students that'll have to knock on 100, 200 doors. And the point isn't that they become good salespeople, because they don't. They become better, better at sales later. The point is, when you knock on 99 doors and people tell you no, you knock on the 100th. You do the work and get the job done. We find these immersive, real-life kind of battle simulations can deliver more learning in a faster period of time. So we try to put people in. You have to go out and haggle for an item and buy it for half-off retail. And you would be stunned. You can walk in JCPenney and you can look at a shirt. And if you just ask the salesperson when they tell you the price, just look them in the eye and say, is that the best you can do? And then just be quiet. 75% of the time you'll get a discount. And then if you're really, really quiet and then you say, are you sure that's the best you can do? About a third of the time you'll get a second discount. But Americans will not ask for a bargain. They just think like it's, it's unfair or immoral or, but we, we're trying to get people not to learn to get a bargain, that's important, but to have the courage to ask. Because if I can't ask, that says something about my image of myself or wanting to be important. There's something weird that goes on if I can't ask somebody for a discount. They can say no, right? Well, what is it about me wanting to keep my stature that I'm so important that I'm gonna pay retail to feel better about myself? You come for five months, you're in the pit, you're in this room, this amphitheater, you're starting work at six in the morning in your study group, you're doing two or three cases a day, each of which takes eight hours to prepare. So you start to add up the math. You're getting out at noon and then you start studying till midnight or one in the morning to get ready to do it again. And even your weekends look like that even though you don't have cases because you're catching up. So there's not, we give you probably 140 hours a week of work to do. You can't humanly do it. You have to decide where to focus. Just like it will be when you're an entrepreneur. Exactly the same way you will feel. And you need to take time out for your health take care of your family. And so for five months, you are in a submarine of intense you know, work with no answers, only questions and hard work. And, and at least for me, when I feel overwhelmed like that, what I haven't done is set my priorities right. Because there's always too much to do. And I'll have the same thing I've got, for like today, I've got too many things to do. Well, I haven't thought about my priorities because I'm in control of that. I said yes to things I shouldn't have said yes to. They're not important. And frankly, I don't want to sit and have to make those choices. It's too hard. People that come out of the MBA say one of the things that's so valuable is they'll never again not take a minute of their time for granted. And they're stunned by how much they can do. The, the, the amount of work you can do if you have to do it is, the, you know, it's back to we never reach our full potential because if we're really intentional and thoughtful and resting and reflecting and celebrating when we should, I can at least work at a 5x rate than when I'm just kind of going through the motions or too busy. The thing I've learned over and over again in, in being in the learning business 
if you care and you care a lot, learning's easy. I mean, that, you'll figure it out or you'll, one of our Navy SEALs that's in the program now, I just love him and he gave a great talk. They're working at, actually there's this end of the program pitch where you get up and you talk about how you've changed. It's like an origin story from life and how you've changed at Acton and where you're headed next and you ask the people in the room for help. And I loved, I was listening to this one SEAL's speech and he said, he, he said I didn't know how to, anything about cash and valuation. And so I did every one of the exercises 15 times. Well, here's a clue. If you do something hard 15 times, you get better at it. I mean, the fact he did each one of them 15 times when most people didn't have time to do them twice just shows how intent he was on learning the material. And you're listening to Jeff Sandifer. Boy, do I want to go to this school. I'd just love to take a year off and get put through the paces. I love that it's a submarine. He draws that analogy. No answers, just questions and hard work. And by the way, that he makes everyone sell door to door and then makes everybody haggle over prices. This should be in every American education for every kid. You'll learn the value of a dollar. You won't think you're too important to ask for a break. That's your family's money. And moreover, you're going to learn to sell. In the end, we all have to do it. We all have to do it. When we come back... Our American Stories continues with Jeff Sandifer's story. And we're back with our American stories in the final portion of Jeff Sandifer's remarkable story. His Acton MBA program has been ranked number one for the best administered program and number one for the most competitive students. But Jeff still cares about all students and his taxpayer dollars. An old friend named Rick Perry gets elected to be lieutenant governor, and he'd been ag commissioner. And, and I've known Rick off and on since he was in Haskell. So this goes back to the days of Abilene and growing up and, you know, and my family had known him. And so I don't like politicians, frankly. Um, he wasn't a politician to me. He was somebody I knew from my hometown and he'd become agricultural commissioner, which again, to me would be like being a dog catcher because I'm not in agriculture, so I wouldn't care. And so the fact he's the agricultural secretary or whatever he is of Texas, it doesn't mean anything. Well, then he gets to be lieutenant governor which doesn't really mean much to me at that point either. I don't know that's the most powerful probably position in the state government, uh, nor do I care, by the way, at that point. But he goes, you know, you know a lot about education when you start looking into that. So in 1998, they form a commission and he's on it, I'm on it, and we fly all around the state looking at it. What's interesting from that is the technical colleges where they take the worst students and they work very hard and they come out and those days they had $75,000 a year jobs, probably 150,000 now. It's like, well, how do we do that? And then at the regular universities, we take the best students in, we spend five times the money and they can't get a job, something's broken. So we start this whole talking about how to change higher ed using all the acting kind of simplistic, hey, let's measure what we wanna do. Hey, let's pay for performance. And by the way, let's pay for great research. The research people bring in 10 times the money, the good ones that they cost. Let's go get more of those and let's get rid of everybody that doesn't do anything. Pretty simple. 
That becomes something called the seven breakthrough solutions, something I made up, terrible title one day. Well, Rick Perry becomes governor and he continues to work on this. He calls together all the regents in the state for a meeting and I present for a morning and he said, we're gonna do these seven things. All hell breaks loose. One of the reasons is that it led to transparency for how many students professors taught and how much research money did they bring in at the University of Texas and Texas A&M. There are roughly 4,000 faculty members at the University of Texas. When we looked at the data, we found out there were 4,000 faculty members. We found out that the adjuncts, the people that were like us, were teaching 40% of the students for 8% of the cost. So now, if you do that math, you can run the whole university on 20 cents on the dollar, right? And so it, one of two things is wrong. Either we should have more of these people teaching more because they're a lot cheaper, or they're terrible and they shouldn't teach at all. So 40% of the 4,000 teachers are teaching for very little money. And also, the researchers, there's a handful of researchers, like 50 to 80, small group, and they're bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars. And by the way, teaching a lot. It's really interesting. Now, so let's, let's do the math. Roughly a thousand of these adjuncts, roughly a hundred of the researchers. So what are the other people doing? What are the other, you know, almost 3,000? Well, we find out that there's a group of about 1,800, so about 60% of the faculty, that are teaching only 26% of the students for 50% of the cost. Even more egregious, 800 of these faculty members bring in no research money and teach zero or one student per year. Those 800 faculty members cost $500 million a year. So, what are they doing? That's a heck of a question. The entire fight over higher education reform was over the question, what are they doing? And this becomes a 10-year fight, you know, with appointing regents who will back the reforms, who then don't have the courage or the backbone to do what they said they would do. The, the whole idea, and this is my idea, this isn't Governor Perry's, let's get the best teachers, whether they're tenured or not, let's get the best researchers, the people that aren't doing either one, they need to justify why they're here, go somewhere else, and we will take a strike. There will be a strike at the University of Texas. When there's a strike, we will figure out that the people who are striking don't do anything. In 90 days, it will all be over because the university will continue to go on like it's always gone on because the people who are good at doing what they aren't on strike. But you're going to have to take a strike, and then you're going to bring the whole charade down. Now, this is 1998. So 20 years ago, it accelerates through, you know, about 2015 or 16, but it's continuing to boil in the bubble. In the middle of all that, I got death threats. Someone shot a rifle into our school with students in it. They almost indicted one of my best friends who was on the Regents, Wallace Hall, who stumbled into admissions corruption. Legislators getting their staff and kids into the university who were clearly not qualified. I mean, who were in the bottom 1% of the class. The University of Texas had a list of 3,000 students that they could not be denied because they were wealthy donors' kids 
and they were politicians' kids and friends of politicians. The same people that are funding the university $500 million a year are sitting in the president's box, yucking it up, getting free tickets and free stuff, and getting people who are unqualified into a state university. And you know, and what's funny is, in, in this particular instance, I don't think it mattered if you were an art capitalist or a leftist or who you were. You wanted your kid in this school and you were going to do things that were just irrational to make that happen. Now, of course, it's for us, it's worse that the government officials are doing it. But the parents' belief that college is going to determine somebody's success is just old-fashioned. Maybe a long time ago, but that's not how the world works now. And so, But the, the people that spend that money are so foolish because they're putting their kids in the wrong place for the wrong reasons and setting them up for failure. But if you want to do this at Baylor or Harvard, it's a private university. You can sell seats. It's okay. You cannot do it for politicians who are providing appropriations. And so this current celebrity scandal we have about admissions, if anyone would do the right research, it's all sitting there that there is a far deeper scandal. And if it's going on at UT Austin, I'd want to take a hard look at every other state university. There was a giant scandal at the University of Illinois five years ago that looked just like this. And they, they found 800 people who had corruptly been admitted. And so I don't know if it's going on other places, but if I were in the education world or in the Department of Justice, I'd sure be looking at it. Because I can tell you at the University of Texas, they were having admissions meetings and shredding all the documents afterwards. Here's a clue, if you shred the documents after a meeting, you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. So we stumbled into this whole gigantic scandal. It was clear it was going on. There were affairs going on between members of the Board of Regents. It was the nastiest, fight I've ever been in and it was all a complete waste of time. We did no good. At the end of it, one of our high officials who was working with us said, look, I'm one of the most powerful people in, in government. This is like dealing with the mafia. We had pea shooters and they had bazookas. I think the story's going to end. Here's where I think the march of capitalism actually, it, it, we win in the end with freedom and capitalism because the universities are going to go broke. Clay Christensen, my friend, Harvard Business School professor, says that you know, half of the universities will be broke in 10 to 15 years will go away. And, and here's the explanation. This is the simple like economics 101 of universities. Universities make 150% of their profits from the freshman sophomore class. They do that by admitting large numbers of students, qualified or unqualified, depending on which school you're in. And then they teach them in large sections by adjuncts, people like our students, for, for very low cost. So you make a lot of money if you pay me $1,000 for a class and I teach 300 people who are paying full tuition. So the teaching's terrible. You know, they're doing their best they can, but they're worn out. They're not making any money. They're never going to get tenure. They're not even on the tenure track. And that's who's teaching most of the students. And so, but that's the business model. Then, and this is kind of the real crime, we're going to fail out a lot of people their sophomore year. And we're gonna do it in courses like organic chemistry and thermodynamics, if you're an engineer and I was an engineer. Now, I can teach thermodynamics, or a middle schooler can learn thermodynamics. It's not, I mean, it's a cool thing to learn, but they purposely give you textbooks that are so bad that it's only if you have you know, 140 IQ can you figure them out. Because they want that group to be juniors and seniors to be taught by the tenured faculty, to then pick out the ones that are smart enough that they can be scholars. It's a scholar-producing machine. Here's the point. If you're making all your money in your freshman, sophomore years, but suddenly those courses are free online, 
the whole model turns upside down very, very quickly. And now you can do a lot, you can get a lot of freshman, sophomore hours. If you're a clever young person, you can get your first two years for free. It doesn't take long. If you can't charge for those freshman, sophomore hours, you're done. And if you're running a university, you can't fire the faculty. You cannot reduce your fixed cost. And firing the adjuncts doesn't do you any good. They don't cost anything. So you're in this, this business model that's highly fragile, losing its highest margin customers with no control of cost. The, I, I believe that's why Clay says so many of these schools could go out of business. And we're seeing the tip of that start to happen in some of the smaller schools. I think that's going to fix it because rooting out the political corruption, unless the Department of Justice gets serious about it, is just too hard. I mean, it's just too hard and it's too protected and there's too much power at stake. And you've been listening to Jeff Sandifer, and what a wise voice, and what a tough-minded voice, and in the end, reform-minded. And I think he's right. I think some things are, are just too big to reform. The markets ultimately will win the day, and the customer, of course, the student, reigns supreme in the end. Jeff Sandifer's story, a remarkable education story, here on Our American Stories.